Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Adoptees Unplugged with host Pam Krosky as she discusses with her guests their thoughts and feelings on all things adoption. And now, here's your host, Pam Krosky. So glad you could join us this afternoon. Um, I may have a deeper voice today than usual. Um, I've had a little bit of a cold, so I hope you guys can uh, bear with me with my lovely, deep, um, you know, voice. Um, My guest today is no um, stranger to my show. I've had her on before, which was a joy then, and it will be today, too. So... um, Before I introduce her, I want to talk a little bit about um, one reason why she is on with us. Um, We're having a conference in a couple of months, and um, it isn't just for uh, Indiana adoptees. It's for uh, adoptees everywhere and for um, moms everywhere, and we really want to encourage people to come. Uh, It's a learning experience. Uh, It is a... I think it's a building experience. It's an educational experience. It's a time that you take for yourself. You really, I mean, we're not going to unplug. We're not going to leave our phones, I know, in our room. And really, I mean, our phones are attached to us. But you can connect with, as we call ourselves, peeps, um, and really spend some time, you know, concentrating on those matters that have to do with, um, adoption and you know those that touch us um, you know attachment things for adoptees um, matters for moms what what they feel it's really a time to get down and dirty and just talk about things that really touch us and I hate to say the word affect us because that really I don't know that's just a word I mean it is true but what what really touches us deeply and um so my guest today um she has a book of course and um at the conference that she was at people came up to me afterwards and they said where did you find her and i was like listen she's been around hello people um well that sounded kind of bad didn't it she's been around (laughs) um but she's (laughs) she's pretty amazing and her story's amazing. So after this, I hope you're going to run out and get her book. Um, but my guest today is Rhonda Churchill, and um, I want to welcome her right now. And Rhonda, why don't you tell us a little bit um, about your stuff? And I just want to welcome you today. So hopefully you can override my voice. So welcome today. Well, thanks, Pam. It's it's always a pleasure to visit with you. Um, well, gosh, where I'm do I glad start? you came I've on. Been yeah, you have been around. Just kidding. That was a horrible introduction. You have been around. I have been around. Uh, for 62 years I've been around. I grew up in, in north central Oklahoma. Uh, my mom began talking to me about the fact that I was adopted when I was two years old. And um, pretty much my childhood was quintessential Americana, you know, on the wheat plains of Oklahoma small town of 3,000 people. What wasn't so ordinary was the fact that during the time my parents were trying to adopt from the state of Oklahoma, their phone line was tapped, was listened into, and uh, the FBI showed up in my little hometown to talk to people about my parents and family. So uh, things weren't ordinary from the very beginning, but I didn't uh, pursue the truth about any of it until I was in my mid-20s and around 1979, 1980, uh, I was led to believe that I had a grandfather who had cared about me, and I decided at that junction that I was going to find that grandfather because, as is the case with many adoptees, I had felt unloved and unwanted despite the fact that I had a wonderful, you know, I have had a wonderful adoptive family. Uh, It was news to me that anyone in my biological family might have cared about me. So 
I went on this quest of almost 30 years to figure out what transpired with the FBI and the state of Oklahoma and and any number of of players at the government level, which led to me eventually writing a book after I discovered that my granddad was Winston Churchill, my father was Randolph, his son. Uh, I wrote a book called The Fifth and Final Name. Right. And I, you know, I called it The Fifth and Final Name because through the course of my searching, I was told, well, you were the Schultz, well, you were this, well, you were that. And so there were a total of five last names on my journey from being a Gafford, which was how I was born, to being Churchill today and uh, a few years after I made that discovery I changed my name to Churchill so how was that to change your name how did that feel when you went to do that well my initial hesitancy was that uh, that I didn't want to you know offend my adopted mom who is still alive she's 92 and she had always been very supportive through my search and you know, was thrilled to death when I discovered who I was. She was rooting for me the whole time, but I knew there was a part of her that might be, you know, might have a difficult time with the idea that I wanted to dispense with my adopted name. But to her credit, her unending credit, she said that she understood. And once I had her permission, I I knew I was going to do it eventually anyway. And when she gave me the go-ahead, I, I did it immediately because I knew that I would do it, you know, after she passed, if if nothing else, if not sooner. So Right. So it, it's been good. It's, you know, when you live, when you live 60, almost 60 years with one name, it's, it's a little surreal and, and bizarre to all of a sudden have a different one, but uh, right. it's always felt right and, uh, you know, just it was just kind of a coming home thing for me internally. Right, right. I, I mean, I think a lot of, I mean, your case is much, much different than than a lot of adoptees. But I think in a in a simpler form, there are a lot of adoptees that have that feeling to want to change their last name. Um, or even their even their first name to what their mothers named them. Um, I I kind of wanted to do that. Uh, of course, it never happened. Um, my adoptive mother probably would have flipped over backwards. Um, I mean, that would have never happened. But you know, there's that there's that feeling that it's because is it, I think it's a connection thing, don't you? Um, it brings us I think, closer. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's I, some... I, I think it is a connection thing. I, I think there's an identity piece to it. But for me, it was all about authenticity and, li- right. and living within the truth, finally. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's bigger for you. It, it's definitely bigger for you. And did, did you hear from anyone within the Churchill family when you changed your name at all? Um, no, not when I changed my name. I, You know, the the family has never wanted to acknowledge, you know, my existence. And I can't, you know, for a minute know exactly why that is, but... Uh, no, I, I I didn't hear from them when I changed my name. When I wrote my book and there was some press about the fact that I had discovered who my father was, I know that, that some of the reporters reached out to some of my family members, but they you know they said very little at all. Uh-huh. No, I haven't. I haven't. But interestingly enough, for me, that that hasn't really mattered that much to me. Uh, Right. I, you know, I was always searching for my grandfather, not for my mother or my father. And uh, you know, he was he was long deceased. He he died when I was nine years old. So, uh, you know, the discovery and being able to read about him and the you know the vast amount of material that's out there about Winston Churchill, I feel like 
you know, I've gotten to know him in a sense, and I've been to England and retraced, you know, a good portion of his life, and been to his spots, you know, been to Parliament, been to Westerham, been to his home at Chartwell, you know, the war rooms, the places that were important to him. So I have felt wow. like I have had a real connection to him and a real, uh, well, I'll say a spiritual connection to him this entire time, really. Right, right. What about your father? What do you feel about that? Do you feel... Well, I know quite a bit about my dad. I've I've been fortunate enough to to speak to people in England who were close to him. So that was a real blessing. You know, people who could look at me and, and say, oh, yes, I see, you know, I see your father and the way you laugh. I see your father and the way you walk. Uh, you know, for yeah. any adoptee, that's really, really precious information. Oh, it is. So for I've sure. learned a lot about him, and there, you know, there are some books about my father as well. He was, he was kind of an outrageous character. He was an alcoholic, and I think, in some respects, kind of tortured being, you know, the son of of Winston Churchill. That's, that's a pretty rough role to. Yeah. To fit into. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Following in those footsteps couldn't have been easy. <laughs> no, couldn't have been easy. No. So I, you know, I feel like I have, I have found what I needed to find, and have felt spiritually satisfied with where I am internally. You know, I don't, I don't feel lacking in any, in any respect. I know a lot of people, you know, search and if if they find that some of their biological relatives or their mother or their father or whoever it might be are deceased, they're quite deflated and uh, mm-hmm. it can be quite frustrating and disheartening. But for me, it was, you know, after 30 years, it was, it was such a blessing to just know who I was. Uh, and it, it, even though it's difficult for me in some respects that my grandfather is Winston Churchill. It's also a blessing in the sense that there's so much information out there about him. You know, if right. I had found if I had found a peanut farmer in southern Oklahoma, you know, there wouldn't be a lot out there about him for me to to read or uh take on, but with with Churchill it's a very very different situation. Right. And there's lots right. of, you know, there's lots of video of him and uh, you know, I feel like I I can know him in a sense. So that that was a blessing. I was glad for that. Well, to be able to hear his voice and you know all of that. I mean, you know when you when you when you search and you can't hear hear their voice or see them move or you know that that's devastating. You know. Yeah. I mean. Right. You know. That's that's really hard. I mean. Um, that that just it leaves a, a big video. hole, you know. It's really absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a video clip of my father during, um, I think it was the '60s, and he's, I don't know if you remember the show What's My Line. Uh huh. And then there was another there was another one called the sixty five thousand dollar pyramid. I think was the name of it, and he was in both of those game shows oh really so those are you know those are really precious things to me because i can hear him talk and i can see him walk very briefly and uh, see some of his mannerisms and facial expressions that you know i i looked at him and i i thought well that's me that's that's how i look when i when i'm a little cheeky or feeling mischievous or i could see i could see myself in my father so that's you know that's precious Stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. That's that. And then about your what about your birth mom? You know, my birth mom, I, I think, was um, probably under a lot of duress because when I when I finally found her, she she had almost a, a traumatic stress reaction to the fact that I had shown up again and. Mm-hmm really didn't know what to do with me and was uh, unwilling to talk to me about any of it or any of my four half-sisters. I 
I, I've lost one sister, but I at the time I had four half-sisters, all of whom tried to talk to her about the circumstances surrounding, you know, my adoption and, and her pregnancy. And mm-hmm. it was obvious that, that things were not normal with it because when she was a couple of months out from delivering, the two older girls knew that, you know, their mother wasn't just gaining weight, that she was probably going to have a baby, although she she never told them that. And they were put into foster care. My sisters were. So, you oh know, it took, you know, it took some some pretty uh, tall strings in DHS to just pick kids up and put them in foster care in Texas. But that's what yeah. happened to them. And they didn't, they didn't see my mother again for over two months. Oh, wow. Uh, so, you know, none of, none of it was normal or ordinary and, my sisters saw, you know, men coming to the door, giving my mother money, uh, you know, during the pregnancy, people they didn't know, and it was all very hush-hush. My mother would, you know, say, well, my, my daughters are here. I'm I'm shutting the door and would shut the door. So there were a lot of things that pointed to uh, the fact that this this wasn't ordinary in any way, shape, or form. Right. So they just removed them from the home and put them in foster care? Right, right. Oh, gosh. That would have been devastating. And they didn't see their mother again until late August. And see, I was born July the 8th. So um, almost a full two months after I was born, she she wasn't around. And nobody, you know, nobody knows what was happening. Right. Uh, as, again, as is frequently the case with adoptees, you don't, you don't get all the details in the records. And according to what I have from the Department of Human Services, I was adopted about seven days after I was, or not adopted, I'm sorry. I was relinquished by her about seven days after I was born. Oh, yeah. Where I was or what I was doing, it, it talks about a couple of foster homes, but doesn't give any kind of time frame and, uh, I don't know, it's it's really unclear where she was and what was happening, but she never would tell anyone how things so, came down. Yeah, so, you know, yeah. you're like, what's happening? I mean, where were you? What was going on? <laughs> that that happens a lot, though. That happens a lot. And there's unaccounted days or sometimes weeks or months that we don't know where we are. You know, who is holding us? Who's taking care of us? What is happening to us? And that is such a travesty because that is the time when we are being formed, you know, when someone should be holding us, you know, um, loving on us. Um, that's, that's where trauma is setting in, you know, and um, that's devastating. So well, yeah. when, when my parents were notified that they that the state had a baby for them, they were called at ten o'clock at night by someone they didn't know from the state of Oklahoma who told them to show up at a hotel down the street from the capitol at that time um, there was a hotel down the street from the state capitol. there isn't any longer, and yeah. Uh, they were to show up the next morning by 8 a.m. Now, this was 10 o'clock one, you know, at night, and they were to be there at 8 o'clock the next morning. Wow. Um, so they went to the room. They were told to check in, tell the, the clerk that they were there to to meet the Department of Human Services, and they were ushered, ushered into a room and sat in a couple of chairs for almost an hour until somebody brought me in. So... No, nothing about it was no you normally go acquiring a baby uh no not you don't go to a hotel <laughs> your parents go um okay um a hotel but i mean yeah. when i mean when you want when you want a child i mean and and the, we have to think back to the time too you know right nowadays i don't know that People wouldn't. Well, some people might. <laughs> some people might still do that, um, but most people would be like, 
uh, a hotel, something might not be right about this. You know. <laughs> well, you have to remember, I was born during Prohibition, and mm-hmm. part of my story involves some pretty shady characters who were tied to the governor's office, and uh, it, was, it was quite a story. Uh, but yeah, right. it was a totally different time, and my my birth mother actually met. Uh, my father at the Tinker Air Force Base Officers Club during a time when, you know, the big bands were controlled by the mob, and uh, wow. so it, it was a it was a totally different era, right? And I think right. people just did. I think people did what they were told to do. You know, when my mother told me that the FBI had come to town and had questioned my grandparents and some local businessmen in town about about the family. Um, I said, you know, Mom, I've I've been searching at that point. I've been searching a good 20 years, and she had never thought to tell me about that. And I said, Mom, did you not think that that was really, really important? And she said, no, to tell you the truth, we didn't think much about it. You know, she said, I think back then you just just did what you were told to do. And I think that's, that's right. Yeah. Well, yeah, you did. I mean, that that's when kids did what they were told to do, too, you know. You just did what an adult told you to do, you know. Right. Now don't. Kids question authority, you know. Um, yeah, I mean, wow. I, I, I can't imagine. Yeah, I'm sure your mom probably just thought, no, we just did what we were told to do and moved on. Yeah. Well, I, she I, said, I, you know, I'm sorry, Pam. I keep forgetting on the radio, and I cut in too no, quick. No, no, that's okay. Go ahead. You go ahead. No, I, you know, she just said we were adopting a baby, and I'm sure they, you know, they wanted to make sure we were going to be a suitable home. Right. You know, to which I replied, Mom, this is the FBI. Don't you think they have bigger fish to fry than? than someone who's adopting a baby. However, you know, during my search, after the Freedom of Information Act was passed, I immediately uh, petitioned to get, you know, any records related to my situation. Of course, there there were none to be had. But during that period of time, I ended up talking to uh, some agents at the Pentagon, and, and one of them said, you know, the... The only time the FBI would have been involved in an adoption is if it involved a foreign dignitary uh, or a foreign diplomat. And he said, you know, if if that were the case, then yes, there would have been some FBI involvement, but that would have been the only case. So, you know, that at the time I heard that, that just further right uh, kind of led me led me down the right path as far as possible family members. Right. So did you think they did you think they came in and bugged the home or they were just what were they just checking out the home or were they making sure you were okay or were they just Oh this being nosy, what were they doing? Well, I I think they were trying to find a suitable home. My my adoptive mother's dad was uh, tied closely to the governor's office for a variety of reasons. He was a college president. He was head of the Masons for the state of Oklahoma. He was golfing buddies with uh, with one of the governor's main advisors and next-door neighbor, I mean, there were just lots of ties to Governor Raymond Gary, who was the governor at that time, right. and and a group of men who called themselves the Tonkawa Mafia, who were in a uh-huh. little town in Tonkawa. We laughingly refer to Tonkawa as the cultural center of the Midwest, and if you've ever been to Tonkawa, you know just how humorous that is. <laughs> but um, there were there was a group of men who were involved in. And some shady things, you know. There was there were whorehouses along the Chikaski River, and uh, some gambling and drinking, and 
and all of it tied back to the governor's office. Wow. So all of these men were, you know, in communication and contact. They golfed together. When my parents were trying to adopt a baby, they had an interview with Lloyd Rader, who was an extremely uh, powerful man in the state of Oklahoma, uh, probably more powerful than the governor himself. So they, you know, they had lots of inroads to the capital. So I think when the situation came up with me, you know, they thought, well, Howard Harold, you know, his daughter wants to adopt. Let's check that out. And they did. Right. Uh, but there were, there were lots of connections there that I was I was finally able to put together. But it, it took a long, long time. It wasn't wasn't easy by any stretch. But I think it makes a darn good read. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. People need yeah. to get your book. I mean, what was your what was your first like? What made you even think to question it though? What was the first like light bulby thing that? not even a word but what was the first like oh my gosh I need to start checking into this like you know where did it start well I never yeah my you know my my mother's mother uh I was very close to my my mother's parents they they lived in the same town I spent a lot of time at their house right and that's the grandfather who was you know, president of the college for a while, an academic dean and head of the Masons, very respected community leader. Um, I just forgot my train of thought. That's all right. Yeah, I mean. Oh, yeah. And so my my grandmother, when I was, I was about 11, she said, you know, when when you were adopted and we we went to a function where some of the adoptive parents, some of the adoptive family was in a room and a caseworker walked in and she said, if you knew the last name of one of the babies who's been adopted, you would know immediately who they are because they're very famous. And my grandmother said she was looking diagonally across the room at me. And she said, I knew that she was trying to tell me something. Well, I was 11 and I, and I didn't pay any attention to that, you know. Right. So there there were other times that I knew, you know, like I say, my mom talked to me about being adopted when I was two. But by the right. time I was in the first grade and, and the second grade and we were being asked, you know, where our families came from, did they come from England, did they come from Ireland, Where, you know, did your grandparents, you know, come from a different country, I... I went to my grandmother and I said, you know, where where did our family come from? Or where did my family come from? I'm sorry. And she said, well, your family is from the same place we're from. And I said, no, Grandma, where did I come from? Right. And so I knew, you know, even even as a young kid, that being adopted meant that I had a different history, that I had a different origin, that I wasn't the same as the people I was living with. Right. So I, but, you know, it didn't, I didn't have this burning desire at that point to figure out who I was. Sure. That didn't happen until I, I was told, listen, you, you had a grandfather who cared about you and he was angry with your father for the way you were treated. And I thought, what? I mean, I had, I had, you know, the bolt upright in my seat kind of reaction Right. To the idea that somebody might have really loved me. People ask right. me a lot. They say, well, why didn't you look for your parents? Why didn't you look for this one or that one? You just you just look for Winston Churchill because he's famous. Right. You know, which is totally comical to me because I had no idea who he was. Right. But right. what he was was the grandfather who loved me, and I knew that was my paternal grandfather. So that was the one I was looking for, but I knew that I would have to find my parents in order to find him. Right. So I I did that despite the fact that I I was led to believe that neither one of my parents, you know, wanted me. So I my attitude was if they didn't want me, I didn't want them. Sure. But I knew sure. that I had to 
I had to find them to find him. Yeah. So that's how that. But that was the case, really. That I mean, we I think we get we get these bits and pieces, and you know, we we I hate that when a story is so. You know, we get fed wrong information sometimes, and adoptees get. You know, they feel like they know a story, but it's not that way. And it's right. just stuck in the brain that way. And they're so just downtrodden because they're for sure that that's how it is. They're positive. But that's not it. That's right. not how. And maybe sometimes some of it is true, but then they're just sure it's, you know, no one wanted me or no, it's not, you know, it is that way, but it's. It's not. But anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt, but yeah. You know. But Well, I think I think one thing is for certain if if you hope to change an internal narrative around adoption, you best keep an open mind. Right. And be and be willing to do everything you can do to explore because things are like you say, they're seldom as they appear to be. Sometimes there's a mix of truth in there, and sometimes there's very little truth in there. Yes, exactly. But I think, you know, I think in my case, it's fair to say that my birth mother wished I hadn't happened because it was, she had four girls, and she was a single parent. Her her husband had been killed in a car accident, and she was in a real pickle financially. Uh, mm-hmm. So she didn't, you know, there wasn't any doubt about the fact that she didn't want a baby. Uh, yeah. But having said that, I think, I mean, she named me after herself. So that's kind of telling. And I that's know that weird. she nursed me for a few days. That's telling. So, yeah. you know, you just, you just have to, you have to have uh, compassion and have to be able to reach out there and put yourself in someone else's shoes and realize that it's not, it's not black and white. Yeah, for sure. I mean, nothing is ever black and white in this, for sure. You know? Right. I mean, it's very difficult all the way around. Um, you know, um, I thought maybe, too, we'd talk about, you know, going to conferences and, you know, kind of the benefit of, you know, sharing with each other and, I don't know that anybody really knows what, you know, what your profession is, and maybe you wanted to, don't want to share that, but, um, but you know, there's so much power I feel like in um, being with, you know, our people. There's just so much action that's made, and you know, when I went to my first conference, gosh, it's now been. Well, actually, 10 years ago, um, it would be like in April. Well, I guess when our conference goes on, um, I thought, I I don't need to go to a conference. I'd been in reunion 15 years. Um, I don't need to go. I, what do I need to go for? You know, um, and um, I went and it literally, I felt like changed my life. And I don't know whether ours will do that for everyone, but the connections I made, I made lifelong friendships, uh, connections that have lasted a lifetime. And, um, yeah, I think there's workshops we do really, um, you know, I think help you find you know, ways to open up, you know, certain channels to work through things, to think differently. You know, we do DNA workshops. We do all kinds of things. And um, I don't know how you felt going to to ours that first year, you know. Well, I think, you know, it's like any, it's like anything else. It's It's one thing to share your experiences, your issues, your struggles with people who are not adopted. And it's an entirely other experience to share them with people who have been there, done that. It's no different than 
a, a drug addict in an NA meeting. I mean, when, right. you're, when you're talking to people who have experienced what you've experienced, it's an entirely different frame of reference than to try to educate or talk to someone who doesn't know anything about the experience. I found it to be, you know, I think you learn, I think you learn as much about yourself as as anything else because in, in hearing another person's experience, you gain what you've missed. Right. And we can't we we can't therapize ourselves. We have to have input. We have to have dialogue. We have to have different different ideas and different experiences. So it's yeah. profoundly profoundly powerful. And not just and not just in terms of expanding our own awareness or our own knowledge, but in just being validated, having our experiences validated. Right, right. I mean, everyone has a story, but the story is just enough different than yours. And, you know, you can learn something. And I'll, I'll never forget um, the first workshop I went to, um, the first or second, um, I was telling um, one of the ladies who she was talking about, you know, how to search and how to do this or that, and I and I raised my hand, and I explained my situation, and it was when I was still looking for my birth father, and I explained, you know, this is this is exactly my story, and a friend of mine who was sitting, she wasn't my friend yet, she was sitting with another friend who became my friend, and she was just telling that friend, I'm never going to meet anyone that has a story like mine, I'm never going to da-da-da-da, and I had just raised my hand, and I was telling this woman, you know, this is what's going on, this is everything, and I'll be darned if my story was not just like hers. And so mm-hmm. when I finished talking, of course, she stops me. And we had sort of been kind of introduced, but we hadn't had a chance to talk, and she goes, you're not going to believe this, but my story is just like yours, almost to the T. And I thought, right there was the reason enough to go, right there. And, um, you know, um, she's now living in the U.K., so we haven't got a chance to talk in a long time. But for a good, you know, six years or seven years, we we were really, really, really close. And, um, you know, we just had so much in common. You know, we served on boards together. But, I mean, there's so much to be gained. And you you need friendships like that. That really grounds you and gives you so much good support. Because, and I say, you know, like the regular humans, that's what I call them. And I know people laugh at me when I say that. It's different than, you know, adoptees that know your story and know how you feel because, there is that, I don't know, 20% difference that we have than the regular public or whatever you want to call it. We just have this, you know, I don't know, we have this connection. And, you know, people try to understand and they want to. And sometimes they don't want to. Um, And sometimes when you're trying to tell your story to someone that doesn't understand, you can just see this blank look on their face like, "Mm mm-mm. Nope, I don't get it. But when you're at these conferences, you don't even have to explain. You can just talk, and everyone gets it. You know, it's amazing to be in a room full of people who just get it. And you come away going, that is exactly what I needed. You know, two days of that, amazing. And then you need two days of recovery, you know. Right, right. Well, the really important thing from my perspective is that this this conference is for adoptees. You know, there are lots and lots of conferences out there for social workers, for adoptive parents, for this one, for that one, or they try to meld together uh, all these different viewpoints, and they're all they're all important and they all deserve their time. But it has been so recently that adoptees have really demanded their own voices be heard. Right. It's, it's so important. It's so very important that we be 
the premier voice in this dialogue. It's just so important. Right. So that's that's the piece for me. You know, I right. I am a mental health therapist. I've I am an EMDR certified clinician, so I I work with trauma. I've worked with adoptees, adoptive parents and birth parents my entire career. Uh, but I can tell you that the important thing is that the thing is is geared for adoptees, support services, education for adoptees. That's that's the important piece. And and what a wonderful world it would be if social workers and mental health professionals and caseworkers and everybody else involved in the lives of adoptees and adoptive parents and birth parents came to these conferences that were adoptee focused because right. that's where you get the understanding. That's where you get the, the bottom line. Uh, right. It's it's so critical. Yeah. Well, you know, so we, I, I said, hope. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I hope that we see more mental health professionals in conferences of this type because that's where you're going to get the true understanding of an adoptee's experience. I I totally agree. And, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to motivate um, local uh, therapists and uh, psychiatrists, um, psychologists to come to these, and they they just don't respond. And I'm shocked. I'm really shocked because, you know, um, a therapist I actually worked for, um, she attended last year, and um, she and I meet all the time to talk. And um, she left last year, uh, and she broke down and cried. She was so just amazed at what what the conference meant. She goes, I get it now. She's like, I finally right. get it. You know, she... Uh, which I was just she actually her um her mother actually adopted um their nephew um it's a long story but anyway so you know he has some of those um you know matters that he feels and he won't talk about them but she said I know he feels those things and um she desperately would love for him to you know go through you know, like one of these workshops and, you know, and I try to encourage a lot of um, male adoptees to come because we have the male adoptee workshop. And, um, you know, that's that's another side of it too is, you know, we don't see a lot of male adoptees come. We see a lot of female uh, adoptees. And um, I think that's important too. Um, you know, they are starting to open up more. Um, you know, I'd really like to see male adoptees attend these um, more than we have been, you know. But, again, right. it's, it all somewhere. Um, we're going to have a great film. It's just going to be amazing. Um, the film we had last year really, really hit home to a lot of people. That's That was the other thing, uh, the therapist I was talking about, she loved that film. So I think films are just so good because they, they make a good impact fast, you know. Um, so that was a, a really good thing. So we really just, we have a lot of a lot of good things this year. We have art, we have films, you know, we have, uh, or film, you know, we have good keynotes, you know, we're just, uh, you and Reshma, who's doing the film, so, you know, it's it's just going to be a good year. And the workshops are killer. Um, we've got a couple of panels. We've never done that before. So um, I've done them, but we've never done them at our conference. So that's going to be um, a really amazing thing to have. Um, it gives the you know, the people a chance to talk and ask questions as a as a whole. So I think that'll be really good. 
Yeah. So well, at the end at the end of the day you want you want adoptees to be able to move forward in their lives uh-huh. and uh-huh. create the best scenario for themselves that they can. Not just as an adoptee but as a person. So you like to hope what? that Yeah. They'll they'll get what? some of those they'll get some of those strategies at the conference, some of those strengths. What do you find in in your practice? Um, do you do you find adoptees asking or stressing on like one particular thing as far as like, uh, if, yeah, I'd have to say loneliness. If I had to pick lon- one thing, yeah, it would be loneliness. Loneliness because in a room full of people. Because they can't make connections, or um, why? Because they're because they're untethered. Because they're untethered in the universe. Okay. You know, it's the whole identity thing. It's the whole identity thing. It's uh, a lack of roots. Right. Okay. It's uh, a, an attempt to find meaning with yeah. with like people uh, right yeah I, I would say I would say loneliness is is the biggest a sense of loneliness that that springs from the lack of the lack of identity and even once you you know even once you search uh, the fact that you've been severed is profound so you know Part of what I'm going to talk about is is that you know how do you how do you go about recreating who you are once you well they yeah biological yeah. people yeah because at well, the end of the day is, that's what it's about it's about who you are yeah yeah that's it's rough loneliness is hard and it's it's really it's it's really um it's very it's it's just very you, you don't fit in one one way or the other you know you you don't fit in with either family you feel like sometimes you know um yeah i have a i have a picture you know? that uh i have a picture of myself in england standing at my granddad's grave and when I looked at that after I was home I thought well that you know that pretty much sums it up there's me and him and there he is and there I am you know that's somehow sometimes that's how it boils down so then the question is what do you do with that you know how do you make that as an adoptee how do you make that knowledge mean something in your life when people are deceased or they don't want to have a relationship with you or maybe they do want to have a relationship with you but the relationship is superficial and really not meaningful like you thought it was going to be right right uh, and that's the challenge you know how how do you how do you take that and find peace with it yeah yeah well and and you know like even with my mom I thought I had a a great, great reunion with her. Great. And I feel like at the end, it it went to heck in a handbasket. And didn't leave me in her will, anything. And we were in reunion for 22 years. Yeah, now, so, at, so at the end of the day, what, what do you do with that? You yeah. Know? What do you do? What do you What do you do with it? What does it What does it say about you? What does it say about her? And uh-huh. and how are you going? And how are you going to be able to leave that in some state of understanding, some state of uh-huh. peace, some state of compassion? Right. And and you know, and where do you put that? I mean, you know, where? And I'm sure other people. And you know, I want to talk about that with other adoptees because. You know, they get close to their families, 
No one ever thinks of that. No one ever thinks, well, my biological mom's not going to not leave me in her will. I would have never thought in a million years that my mother would have not left me in her will. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not about money. This is not about poverty. This is not about that. This is about connection. This is about um, being a family member. This is about, you know. um, Yeah. Um, She mentions me. She says I have a third daughter, but she doesn't leave me anything. And that comment that you just made, it's not about money. That Mm -hmm. is a comment that a room full of adoptees totally and absolutely understand. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But it is not something something that the general public is going to automatically understand. Oh, they wouldn't. No, and... That's a yeah. good that's a good example of of what you get at an adoption conference that you don't get sitting in the church basement chatting with your you know with your church buddies. Exactly. It's, it's a totally different kind of thing. Right. Well, and and you know talking to um her husband, he had me come talk to him and he said he kept talking about other like adopted um, family members or other people he knew, and he kept saying that. And I thought, are you trying to tell me it's because I'm adopted? And I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, right. do you know it's because of her that I'm adopted? So I don't right. really know what that was, and it's. I mean, this is going off subject, but. You know, I I think there's so many points to make that we're in such a limbo stage. We float between two worlds. And for us to find a landing point, it's difficult. So we need to find a landing point for ourselves. You know, we need to know, yeah, we need to know we are good. We are okay. You know, we are um, solid human beings, and and, and there are so many, you know, um, good, uh, um, amazing people around us at these conferences. And connecting with them will only, you know, help. And that's why these are so good to go to. And um, you you need them. And I I don't think people realize that. And I don't real I don't think people realize how much they get from it, and it's such a bonding experience. Um, so I want people to well, it's, it's it's the nuts and bolts. It's a whole different layer, right? You know, right. It's, it's the nitty gritty. It's it's the it is a a compilation of people who have dissected adoption, worked with adoption, experienced adoption, all right. at once. Right. So it's not right. a social work. It's not a social worker who's speaking from the cheap seats, even though they've dealt with adoption for fifty years. These right. are people who have lived it. It is an entirely different ball of right. wax. Right. Right. Yeah, we're going to get. We're going to have you, who who is a social worker, but you're also going to have somebody who is doing a film who isn't a social worker. You're going to have. You know, me, who's, you know, worked with the law and has done this for 28 years and doesn't have a lick of social work experience. But, you know, there's such a range of this, and all of it means something. And to get one room is is amazing, you know. Um, but... It it will obviously make you really sit and think. Um, but yeah, right. It's, it's well, yeah. hopefully, and hopefully, for the adoptees that attend, it it will give them uh, a little renewed feeling of 
their own ability to rise above some of the damage that's been done. Because at the end of the day, you want peace and you want happiness and you want some sense of identity. Right. Right. Whether you're in reunion or you're not. Right. Right. Well, you know, I think I think that's the thing and and you know, we try to make it as affordable as we can. You know, we try to make it so that people can come enjoy this time and you know, if they need to share rooms and you know, do that kind of thing, we try that. There's so much food available. Um, we moved a little outside of um downtown Indy. Um there is a there's a free shuttle from the airport for people that are flying in. Um, if you're staying at the hotel, they're doing um, free breakfast. This breakfast is amazing. And then in the evening, they do like um, free, it's like free cocktails and food. I mean, you literally can live. And then we're feeding you lunch both days. So people are hardly even going to have to buy their own food. So um, there's just so much free stuff available food-wise and travel. And the shuttle will even take you. Plainfield is this little tiny town. They call it the, I don't know, if it's some, like, bedroom district. I'm like, who named it that? But it's this little outskirt town of Indianapolis. But it's very beautiful. Um, But this hotel, the convention center was done in August. But the hotel will just be done March 4th. Um, but it's it's gorgeous. I mean, it's absolutely gorgeous. I've seen pictures of the part that's done. The colors are beautiful. Um, so I, I've been teasing that it's going to be so new that we can walk barefoot, you know. Um, <laughs> I, don't really, I don't really think I'm going to do that. But, you know, um, but I'm excited because um, – to have such a brand new hotel and have all these amenities, um, it's rare. So, um, but you know, I'm hoping people will decide to come and join us, and um, you know, just take a couple of days out and you know, join in and spend some time, um, maybe learning some things. Um, you know, you can contribute too. You know, we want you to do that also. Um, and come hear you, and come watch the film, and um, there's going to be authors there also. You'll have your book. Um, other people, a few other people have their books, and um, it's really going to be, I think, a great learning experience for me, too. So, um, but um, well, tell people where they can get your book right now. Oh, my book is available on Amazon. Uh, okay. Or- any of the e-readers, you can get it uh, on audible.com if you'd rather listen to it than read it. Okay, uh, okay. Any of, any of those places. I Alrighty. think one of, the, one of the things that's the most exciting to me, Pam, about the conference is the the workshop on synchronicity. I love that. I can't remember who's doing it with Lynn Grubb, but, you know, oh. synchronicity is so important, I think, for adoptees to kind of recognize that there's a bigger universe out there at play. Yep, and to yep. bring some of those spiritual elements uh, into recognition within your own self because, uh, well, depending on your belief system, there's a reason for everything. And if you can kind of look at things from a meta viewpoint, it, it's helpful. So I, I'm excited about that. Synchronicity has played such a huge part in my life, and I was thrilled to yeah. see a workshop on it. That's very exciting. Yeah, that's Lynn and uh, Paige Strickland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, awesome. that would be a that would be a good one. Yeah, I end up having I go into workshops and try to watch them, and then I end up getting pulled out of half the workshop. So I'm hoping I get to sit in on at least some of some of them. So I'm hoping I get to enjoy them. But um, I'm so glad you got to be on with me today. And um, everybody, if you want to get Rhonda's book. Um, you know, go to Amazon or um, the places she mentioned. If you want to come to the conference, I think you're bringing some books there. Um, mm-hmm. And 
please join us. You can go to indianaadoptinetwork.org. And if you scroll down, you'll see where you can uh, register for the conference. Now, the cutoff date for um, getting uh, the hotel room cuts off uh, March 7th. So it's not very far from now. So, And I don't know how many rooms we have left. So if you're going to get a room, you got to get it now because we only reserved so many rooms. Um, so, uh, and that's a special rate. So they're they're cutting us out. They only gave us so many, and um, so we're trying to get a few more. So, anyways, go to IndianaAdoptingNetwork.org and um, get your room reserved and um, come join us. Have a good time. You know, be with your peeps, and um, we hope to see you. And watch a good film, see some art, um, and spend some time and come meet me and Rhonda and enjoy yourself. And so, Rhonda, thank you for being on. And until next time, you guys, blue skies and green lights. And, Rhonda, thanks for being on, and I will see you soon, Rhonda. Thanks, Pam. You're welcome. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.